0: So, in our passage today, um, we're going to look at the entire chapter of of the third chapter of Acts. It's an amazing, amazing story. We have a miracle, a bona fide miracle. If you had been there, you would have been amazed. And hopefully, you're amazed even reading the, the account in the Bible. A miracle and a message. A miracle and a message. Not just a miracle, not just a message, a miracle and a message. And it, you see this as a pattern throughout the book of Acts. You see God doing mighty works among people and then opportunity to speak a message pointing to Jesus. Right? The, this miracle was a sign. And when you're driving down the road and you're trying to find your destination and you're following signs, you don't get fixated on the signs, you want to get to the destination that the sign leads you to. And so this miracle is a fantastic, amazing miracle, and God does these throughout the scriptures and even today, but there are signs that point us to a destination. This is a pattern throughout the book of Acts with the early church. This is a pattern we see in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus would go around and proclaim a message. The kingdom of God is at hand, call people to repent, and he would do miraculous things to attest to who he said he was. So we see this throughout the scriptures. And word and deed ministry always must go together. Word and deed, word and works, word and service, if you will. Speaking and doing must always go hand in hand in the ministry of the church or the ministry of individual Christians. Tim Keller said word ministry and deed ministry go hand in hand. If one outpaces the other it all falls apart. So we want to speak of Christ and we want to do deeds of mercy or deeds of service and acts of love and compassion for people. And that's what we see in this passage. We see a a miracle and a message, a miracle that Peter then uses to point with a message to the one who performed the miracle. So let's. what I want to do is walk through this miracle and then give Peter's explanation, which is basically him using it as an arrow to point to a person, namely Jesus. Okay. So here's the, here's the miracle. I, I want you guys to understand what happened here. If you've read over this story many times, it might just breeze over like, yeah, 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 this lame man was raised up. It's like, wait a second, wait a second. If you had been there, you would have been amazed. You would have been one of the crowd that was astonished and gathered together and just been part of this, roar, this uproar. You would have been part of, it, part of it. It would have been amazing to you, just like it was to them. There was a man who was born lame. He wasn't just partially disabled. He was born lame. He's a full-grown man, maybe 30, 40 years old. Born lame. He was carried to the temple and set down by a particular gate called the Beautiful Gate for maximum exposure. His friends would carry him there and he was there where, got maximum exposure where he could ask as many people as possible for alms which was basically donations for people who couldn't provide for themselves. For people in a tough spot. He would ask alms. He would beg for money. If you've ever been down to downtown Des Moines, in the evening and walked down street down court avenue there are people there that essentially do this now a lot of them aren't lame they want money for other reasons but they they ask for money got some extra got some spare change got a few bucks you can you can give that's what this man did he would sit outside the beautiful gate and he would ask for money Peter and John, it says, were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. This was a specific hour where, according to Jewish tradition, Jews would go to the temple and pray, and Peter and John were going. And they saw this man. And this man asked them for money. Now, it's, it's likely that they'd seen this man before, perhaps many times. This man asks them for money. And Peter and John, or says, Peter says, look at me. And no doubt this man thought, bingo, cha-ching, right? They're going to hook me up with some cash. And Peter says, I have no money to give to you. But in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. Grabbed him by the hand. And this lame man, who apparently had never walked in his life, got up. Would you have been amazed? Kids, would you have been amazed? Probably. Maybe, maybe you have a friend in school who is in a wheelchair. Maybe you know a family member who's in a wheelchair and they haven't been able to walk for a few years or five years or a few months even. That would be amazing. This guy had never walked in his life. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Helps him up. And it says immediately, his ankles and his feet are made strong, and what does he do? He walks, doesn't stop there, he leaps, and he praises God. Walking, leaping, praising God. And the people saw, and they recognized him. This guy was, he was common fare at the temple. He sat there daily, asking for money. Many people walked by him every day, never gave him a, not even a single coin. They saw this man walking and leaping and praising God, and they did what anyone would do. They said, oh my goodness, they gathered together. What is going on? What has happened to this man? And it says, Peter saw the crowd coming. I love verse 11. While this man clung to Peter and John, and all the people around, utterly astounded, ran together, It says, when Peter saw it, it's amazing. Peter had the the mindset. When Peter saw the people running, Peter used it as an opportunity to address the crowd, right? There's this amazing miracle. And he didn't just say, isn't this amazing? Isn't this so cool? He used it as an opportunity to address the crowd, And essentially says, don't fix your attention on us. Right? He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? It's like, duh, Peter, a lame man just got up and walked. Why wouldn't we be staring at it? Why do you look at us? Why do you stare at us? As though through our own power or piety, we have made this man walk. In other words, Peter's like, don't stare at us. And I think Peter's even saying, don't get fixated even on this man and the miracle. That's not the real attraction here. And then he goes into his message and he points the people to Jesus. Don't be astonished at us or this sign, but follow this sign. Let me help you follow this sign to its destination. If we had been there, we'd be utterly amazed. And we would be tempted, as we are now, to fall in love with a miracle or a sign. And not with the one who did it. Not fall in in love with the one who performed it. Not fall in love with the one who actually accomplished it. And Peter wants to point the people to the man, Jesus Christ, who did this, to the miracle worker. He says, don't look at us and don't even look mainly at this man or this miracle. Look at the one it points to. And Peter says this miracle points to Jesus. He points to Jesus, I think, in five ways, or at least I want to draw out five ways in this passage. It points to Jesus as healer, no doubt. It points to Jesus as healer, number one. It points to Jesus as our righteous substitute. It points to Jesus as our life. It points to Jesus as our hope. And it points to Jesus as our confidence in God's promises. All of God's promises. So let's just let's go through these one at a time. The miracle clearly, unmistakably, and most obviously, points to Jesus as our healer. What does a healing like this teach us about what God thinks of sickness and disease and disability? He doesn't like it. It's not the way that things are supposed to be, right? Physical sickness and disabilities and all of these things, though God uses them for our good, no doubt, no doubt, they are not intrinsically good in themselves, And so God is pleased many times to bring healing to people who are sick, diseased, lame, leprous, etc. We see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. It's a part of God's nature to heal. In fact, one of the names given to God in the Old Testament that that we see in Exodus chapter 15, one of his names is the Lord, your healer. I am the Lord, your healer. And when God in the flesh comes, right, when God puts on flesh and walks among us, what does he do? Well, he he does things that are in keeping with his nature. He heals. He delivers. He makes people whole. As Jesus was healing in Matthew chapter 8, it says he healed all the people That came, this big crowd, people, he healed all of them, cast demons out, made them whole, and it says this, this was spoke, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And then it quotes Isaiah 53, 12, very well known passage. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus is revealed here very clearly as a healer. You might say, wait a second, but Jesus didn't heal him, Peter did. Well, it's interesting. When Peter and John get this man's attention, who is expecting to receive some money, Peter quickly dashes his hopes of any money, but then gives him something far better. And I want you to see here how Peter wants to deflect attention away, even from himself, and the ability he may have been given at that time, to the one who really has the power, and the worthiness to do miracles and healings, and that's Christ. Peter says, I don't have any money to give to you, not even a dime, but what I do have. I love that. What I do have, I give to you. What I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Wow. What did he have that he gave this lame man? <clears throat> now, some would suggest, well, he gave him Jesus. Okay, that's probably true. He gave him the Holy Spirit, right? He gave him a touch from the Spirit. Okay, that maybe. I do think this passage actually narrows it down more for us. Once the crowd gathered, Peter quickly redirects the attention of the crowd from him and John onto Jesus. Verse 12, he says again, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? It's not because of our power or piety that this man is walking. He says, don't look at us. It's not our fault, right? It's not us. Don't stand in awe of us. Peter wants to make it clear that the power didn't come from him to perform this miracle and his godliness didn't merit it. Peter gives his explanation of how this miracle happened in verse 16. It says, and his name, his name, whose name? Jesus' name. His name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And then there's this strange phrase. And the faith that is through Jesus has made him, this man, perfectly healthy in the presence of you all. The faith that is through Jesus. So it's, it's his name and faith in his name and the faith that is through Jesus. Now when we talk about the name of Jesus, I think this is something we really need a good, better understanding of. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying with the authority that he's granted us as his people, as his children. But we're also, it's not just tacking the words in Jesus' name on. It's not just a mantra we say. It's not just saying the name of Jesus like saying those two syllables has some magical power. I remember once hearing somebody say, they, they read this story in Acts chapter 3, said, oh, I think I understand now. When we pray for someone to be healed, we've got to say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We've got to tack on of Nazareth. It's like, no, no, that's just, that's more superstition than anything. When we talk about the name of Jesus, or when we talk about the names of God, what are we talking about? The nature and character of God, who he is, what he's done, what he's shown us of himself. And so when we pray in the name of Jesus, it is, we are praying in the reality of Christ and who he is in all that he is. Confidence in Jesus. And of course, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are, we are coming to the Father through what Jesus has accomplished alone. We have no hold on God save what Jesus has offered us in himself. Right? Jesus Paid it all. We're going to stand before God, holy in His sight, in Jesus' name, through Jesus. So, it's the name of Jesus, and it is faith in the name of Jesus. Now, I think it's important for us to understand it wasn't the lame man's faith. It was Peter's faith. The lame man had no faith, right? He wanted money. He didn't, wasn't expecting healing. It was Peter's faith. But then this phrase, and the faith that is through Jesus has made this man perfectly whole in your sight. Here's what I take that to mean. It's faith in Jesus' name, but also faith through Jesus. I think what Peter's saying is that he received a gift of faith through Jesus, whereby he confidently trusted in Jesus to give this man a gift of healing. I think that's what happened here. Now, Peter doesn't use the language of gift of healing or gift of faith, But Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12. talks about the gift of healing, gifts of healing and a gift of faith. In essence, I think when Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk, he's saying, I'm speaking these words, but Jesus is healing you right now. And helped him up. And he got up and walked. So... Does God still heal like this today? The question is not, can God? Everyone believes God can. The question is, does God still heal like this today? And I have to say yes, not because I've seen a miracle like this. I've heard of some. But because I see nothing in the Bible That would tell me that God doesn't do these things anymore, that He stopped doing these things. Think with me just for a few moments. Why did God heal people in the Bible? What are some reasons He healed? Compassion for people, right? Jesus had compassion on the crowds and He healed their sick. You're here today, sick. You have pain in your body, you have a disease. God has rich compassion for you. Why, did, why else did he heal people? Glory to God so that God would be glorified. Why else? To demonstrate the kingdom of God. To, as a demonstration that God's kingdom had come and is present He healed as a sign for unbelievers. We see that certainly in this passage. He healed to to give unbelievers a sign of his presence, of, of, of the reality of Jesus. He healed in order to encourage believers to praise and worship God. So, why wouldn't he still heal for these reasons? Out of compassion, to glorify God, to demonstrate his kingdom. To give evidence or or sign. I realize that, that a healing or a miracle doesn't save anyone, but it could help bring people to a place where they will hear a message. So should we pray for the sick? Hopefully that's an obvious answer. Yes, we should. A thousand times, yes, we should. And the Spirit may be pleased to give us a gift of healing like he gave Peter a gift of healing. In fact, I would urge you, there are people here in our midst today who, who need healing, who desire healing, who are seeking God for healing for their bodies. And would you seek them out today before you leave and pray for them? And even between now and then, would you just ask the Lord to give you a gift of faith or a gift of healing to deliver to them, right? Peter and John said, whatever we, what we have, we give to you. And they delivered a gift from God to this lame man. And he got up and walked. So this miracle pointed to Jesus, the healer, but it does more than that. It points to Jesus as our perfect substitute. You see, you and I have a much bigger problem than physical ailments, all of humanity has a bigger problem than physical ailments. If God healed everybody, but he withheld this deeper need that we have, we would all be in a bunch of trouble, right? Our bigger problem is that our sin-sick souls need to be healed. And by saying sin-sick, I don't mean that that we are victims of sin. We, are, we have sinned, But our sin has wreaked havoc on our souls and we need our sin-sick souls to be healed. So God's answer is Jesus, of course. But we see in an unusual way Jesus brought out as the answer here in our text. In verses 13 and 14, here's what it says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. And get this, and asked for a murderer to be granted you instead. Jesus here is called the Holy and Righteous One. Clearly, most translations have Holy, Righteous One, all capitalized, the first letters, that is. And, and I think the reason why is because this seems to be a clear indication of the deity of Jesus, or clear title of Jesus as God. But the adjectives holy and righteous are not accidental. Okay? uh, Peter could have just said, you denied God, or you denied the Lord. But he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Peter's reminding in these verses, he's reminding his hearers of the trial when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man and is going to release him. And the people said, do not release him. Crucify him. We rightly cry injustice when an innocent man is accused of a crime he didn't commit. And even worse, if he's punished for a crime he doesn't commit. How much more when the holy and righteous one is being called for to be crucified before an angry mob. But it gets worse. They cry for him to be crucified, and then Pilate says, tell you what, I'm going to release one of these two people, either Jesus or Barabbas, this insurrectionist murderer. Right? Barabbas was this revolutionary who stirred up trouble and was a murderer as well. And what do the people say? Give us Barabbas! Give us the murderer and take Jesus and crucify him. Has there ever been such a miscarriage of justice in all the history of the world? And yet, we see in this exchange right here Barabbas released, Jesus crucified. We see the story of salvation for every sinner that Jesus was exchanged for. Don't we? Isn't this, isn't this how we're saved? Isn't this the story of our salvation? The sinner goes free and Jesus is crucified. Jesus is the holy and righteous one who is a substitute for murderers and thieves and adulterers and liars and those addicted to pornography and alcoholics and those who struggle with anger those that have rage in their heart Jesus is a substitute Jesus takes their place if you will many many years later after, G- after Peter preached this message he wrote this in 1 Peter 2.24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then get this. Then he quotes Isaiah 53. And by his wounds, we have been healed. By his wounds, you've been healed. Healed of what? The massive, dark sickness in our souls called sin. By his wounds, You have been healed. Now you may be healed someday. You have been healed. And then Peter wrote this again in 1 Peter 3, 18. He says, Jesus died once for sins. This is that picture of exchange. Jesus died once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. I'll include myself, right? The unrighteous in order that he might bring us to God. This is the deep soul healing we all desperately need. All of humanity needs it. There will be many, many godly, precious saints that will go through much of life with pain in their body. But if they have this healing, then they have true healing in Christ and the physical healing will come later. This is the healing we all need. Sins removed, made dead to sin, made alive to a li- to a new life of righteousness and brought to God through our perfect substitute Jesus Christ. And I would urge you this morning, if you are if you came in today, limping or bent over or with a headache or with some kind of disease in your body we want to pray for you we want to pray and seek our healer jesus on your behalf and i want you to keep seeking the lord for that but i also want you to rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy in this healing that has come to you through Jesus alone. This miracle points to Jesus as our perfect substitute, but it, it, it goes further than that. It also points to Jesus as our life. Jesus as our life. Verse 15, Peter says, And you killed... You hear these indictments on these people. You killed. You denied. He says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And of this, we are all witnesses. What a title given to Jesus. The author of life. What a title. The author of life. The New American Standard Bible translates author. Prince. I think there's another there's another translation that, that, that translates it captain. Those words can be used interchangeably. That, that Greek word can mean all of those things, any one of those things. I think the, the point is clear. Jesus has life in himself. You and I don't. We do not have life in ourselves. Jesus has life in himself, and he has won it and shares it. With his people. This is not just um, a little jump in our step. Like a little life, you know? A little pick-me-up today. A little physical energy today. It might result in that. This is something far more profound. At the beginning, when Adam sinned, the pronouncement came true, Adam was told, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And since that time, the sentence of death has spread to all of humanity, including us. Physical death will happen to everyone, and spiritual death, all of us have experienced. All of us are born into spiritual death, right? That's just, that is just—that is the curse that God pronounced upon Adam and has spread to all of us. But Jesus... Having won the victory over death is the author of life now. And here's what that means. Spiritual life now and death does not have the final say over us. Physical death does not have the final say over us. So now for those who belong to Jesus, the saying is true. Whoever lives and believes in me, get this, will never die. Isn't that amazing? Whoever lives and believes in me, John 11, 25, and 26, will never die. How can this be? Because the author of life has risen from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. What happens when the author of life is killed and then comes back to life? You know what he does? He kills death. He puts death To death. John Owen wrote this great book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The author of life killed death for all who trust in him. So death does not have the final say over us. That's why Paul says, Oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Jesus has triumphed over it, and in him, our author of life, we do as well so Jesus is the head and fountain of our life now and forevermore I love what Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 4 when he says when Christ appear, when Christ and then he says this who is our life appears Christ our life not even Christ is giving us life but the author of life being our life what is your life? What is life to you? Is life work or family or a hobby or kids? What is life to you? Jesus is to be our life. Jesus is to give us this brand new life. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation, The old has passed away and the new has come. If we have died with Christ, which baptism is a picture of, if we have been buried with Christ, then we've been raised to newness of life with him as well. Jesus, the author of life, is this life for us. He gives it freely to all who will run to him for it. And so this morning, you ever read the book Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress? One of the op- opening scenes in the book. It's just amazing. If you haven't read it, put it on your list for this year, okay? You've got to read it. It's one of the best books ever. <clears throat> one, one of the opening scenes, Christian, the main, not Christian Strand, uh, Christian, the main pr- protagonist in the movie, He is uh, he's heard of this message of eternal life. And he's running out of his city, out of his town. And he's yelling, life, life, eternal life. So run this morning. Turn away from the things that you think is life, but it's, it's just a dead end. It doesn't really, it doesn't satisfy. And run to Jesus for life, life, eternal life. Don't wait until you die to experience eternal life, it is offered to us now. It's offered to us now through Jesus. So this miracle points to Jesus as our life, but it, it, it goes even further. This miracle of this lame man getting up and walking points to Jesus as our hope, as our eternal future hope. Hope is lost for many. Many people don't have hope. And I, I mean New Testament hope. I mean the kind of hope the Bible talks about. Not, not, not I think tomorrow's going to be better than today or anything like that. Not a wishful thinking. I mean a firm confidence, an unshakable confidence in a future that is bright beyond a thousand suns. We have it in Christ. I mean a future like Peter describes when he says a, an, an inheritance or a future that is imperishable, it'll never die, it's undefiled, it'll never get sullied or defiled, and it's unfading. It will never fade in its beauty and glory. Verse 21, Peter says this, Jesus, he speaks of Jesus, the one heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter speaks of a time when all things will be restored, and this is something God has prophesied, something God spoke about. What is this time for restoring all things? Well, the, the word restore means to set things back in order, to bring things back to an original state. In other words, to bring things back to perfection. To restore Eden. To restore things to a, a state of perfect beauty and harmony and glory through Jesus. It is the day when Jesus returns and makes everything new. He makes everything new. He will completely renovate all of creation, which is subject to brokenness and decay. We, we realize that, don't we? you know what we, we are to pray your kingdom come your will be done but we will not usher it in fully Jesus will Jesus will and before until Jesus comes we will always experience brokenness and decay in this creation including the creation of our bodies. Paul says this in Romans 821 the creation itself speaks of this day. When Christ comes, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself, including our bodies, they will be made totally new. You want to know how much God cares about our physical bodies? You want to know how much he cares about it? That though in this brief span of time in the history or in all of eternity, I guess, in this brief span of time, we carry along pain in our bodies. He is so committed to our bodies that we will have perfect bodies forever that will never get old, never wear out, never get sick, never will never get a sprained ankle or broken leg. I mean, how amazing is that? I'll be able to run up Mount Everest and do it in a day maybe. I don't know. creation itself, including our bodies, will be set free. They will be made new in the twinkling of an eye. We will be changed. And these bodies, which are weak, will be made indestructible. Death, the final enemy, will be put under the feet of Jesus forever. So the healing of Acts 3 and every temporary healing since then and that we may see and experience and know of, We rejoice in them. We should seek God for more of them. But let's also remember these are all precursors anticipating that day when Jesus comes and makes all things new. Just how expansive will this restoration be? It's going to be amazing. Isaiah eleven just gives us just a sense of this. It's hard for us to even fathom this. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied: the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze; their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw with the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Wow. And the wean child will put his hand over the den of the adder, another poisonous snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, this is the kicker. This is the punchline. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Johnny Erickson taught a, a woman who, um, as, as a young woman, very young, was paralyzed in an accident. She has an amazing ministry, sought God for healing. He hasn't healed her. She says this about that day when Jesus restores all things. She says, when I get my glorified body, the first thing I'm going to do with my resurrected legs is fall down on grateful, glorified knees. And that's what we'll do. She said... Then I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me stretch my glorified muscles and dance on my tiptoes. Do you hope for that day? The early Christians, this was, this was so much in their thinking. You were made for it. Jesus is our hope finally, the miracle of this story points to Jesus as our confidence. I want to breeze through this quick, okay? How do, what confidence, Jesus as our confidence in all of God's promises? What is, the con, what is our confidence that all these things are true? Jesus, our healer, our substitute, our life and our hope. Peter uses the opportunity in this account, in after this miraculous healing, to point his listeners not inward to some personal intuition for validation but he points them to the trustworthiness of God's word. He pointed them time and again to the words of a God who cannot lie and whose words will never fall to the ground and whose words will not return to him void. Peter highlights Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and as the guarantee of God's promises for his people. Just look quickly. Verse 18, Peter says that what God spoke by the mouth of his prophets. Now, it's interesting it says that. It doesn't say his prophets spoke. It says God spoke through his prophets. That's how we should view the Bible. God speaking through these words. Right. These are God's words. God spoke through the mouth of his prophets that the Christ would suffer. He fulfilled. God spoke it. God fulfilled it. Verse 24, Peter says again, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. All the prophets spoke of Christ. From Samuel to Isaiah Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Habakkuk, all of them spoke concerning Christ and they spoke about the days of his death and resurrection and God fulfilled it verse 25 Peter goes all the way back to Abraham the ultimate patriarch for the Jewish people right all the way back to Abraham and this massive promise that God gave to Abraham that In your offspring, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, we know from Paul's interpretation of that in Galatians, the offspring, the seed, is Christ. In Christ, all the nations will be blessed. If God spoke through the prophets and did what he said over and over again, is there any reason for you and I to doubt that God can or will keep his word to his people now. I love 2 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21. And the phrase it says, all of the promises find their yes in Christ. All of them, every single one of them, finds their yes in Christ. Jesus. God's word is true and can be fully trusted. So this amazing miracle performed for a lame man points us to far more than just temporary healing. It does point us to that. It does show us that. We we are to exalt that. We We are to honor that. We are to love that. We are to long to see more of that. But it points us to more than just that. It serves as a sign pointing us to Our healer, our substitute, our life, our hope, and our confidence, which is all found in Christ and Christ alone. So it's not surprising, during this message, Peter calls for a fitting response. And it's very simple, and it's a response that all of us need to hear. All of us need to hear. None of us take Jesus too seriously. None of us do. I've never met one person who's like, man, he just takes he just takes the Savior a little too serious. None of us do. Peter said in verse 19, repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent, therefore, and turn back. To repent means to change your thinking. Literally, I think it this, this is saying. Change your thinking and run back to God. Change the way you think and run to God. Repent and run to Jesus. Now, it's, it has to be said, this is, when, when, we're, when we're told to, come, to repent, I hope you realize this, it's not a suggestion. It is a command. Repent and turn back. Change the way you think about Jesus and run to him. He's, he's, he's far better than you've ever imagined. Just kind of having Jesus over here, you kinda of, you kind of ask him for a little help here and there, that won't cut it. He won't be your healer and your substitute and your life and your hope and your confidence. He wants to be all those things. And so turn. Change the way you think and run to Christ. And then I just would add one more thing. And then go and show and tell how wonderful Jesus is. Telling and showing, right? Deed and word. How amazing this Jesus is. I love the story of the man who had a thousand demons, right? He had a legion of of demons in him. And Jesus set him free, and the people came, the people from the village came out, and they're like, whoa, this is kind of creepy. And they were more scared of Jesus than they were of this guy. It's really kind of a strange story. But anyways, the man said, that was healed, delivered, he said, I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, go back to your friends and family and tell them the wonderful things God has done for you and how he's shown you mercy. And that's, that's what we're all called to do, right? If we are here, if if, if we're here. <laughs> if you have been delivered, if Jesus is your substitute and your life and your confidence and your hope, tell of the wonderful things he's done for you and show with deeds of mercy. Perhaps God would do something as stunningly amazing as our story today, bringing healing to someone like that. Let's pray.